0: Well, I'm taking three weeks to talk in my sermons about story and why story is important and central to the Christian faith and how story works. This is a, a near and dear topic for me because I wrote my doctoral dissertation on story and I'm currently working on a book on story, which I, I've been working on uh, over this month of January. So I thought I would share that with you. In fact, uh, as I explained it, I think you're going to see that you've already if you've been around me, heard some of these things. I am just never have had the opportunity in my three years at Northminster to dive into exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, So it'll be fun to to sort of expand on that and talk about story. And I I think if I'm going to talk about story, I should start with a story. So uh, a rabbi is leaving services on Shabbat, and he looks in the back of of the uh, synagogue and, and sees a man Uh, disheveled and and down, despondent, downtrodden, just see that the man's upset. So after services, he goes back to the man and asks, what is the matter? The man shakes his head nearly in tears and says, well, Rabbi, I've been looking for a good wife and I brought home several girls, but my mom, my mother doesn't like any of them. She finds flaws in all of them and I don't know what I'm going to do. Rabbi thought for a moment and then said, okay, I, I got an idea. Here's what you should do. Go find a girl that looks like your mother, that dresses like your mother, and uh, even kind of acts like your mother. And then when you bring her home, your mother is bound to like her. The man nodded and thanked the rabbi, and then with a little more confidence kind of walks out. And the rabbi doesn't think much of it until about a month later when the rabbi is doing services on Shabbat and the same man is in the back and he looks even more distraught and more disheveled than last time. His hands are just, his head is just buried in his hands. After the service, the rabbi goes up to him and says, well, what happened? And he said, well, I did what you said. And I, I found a woman. She, she looks like my mom, sounds like my mom. She dresses like my mom. She even cooks like my mom. And I brought her home and my mother loved her. And then the rabbi said, well, then what's the problem? And he said, well, well, now my father doesn't like her. See, uh, let me ask you a question. Like, I just told you a certain kind of story called a joke. When did you know it was a joke? Like, think back as I'm telling that joke. How many of you you knew pretty early that I was telling you a joke? Maybe it's because I said so. Maybe it's because it was about a rabbi. Maybe it's because it was in the present tense or just my, my. But, but somehow your brain knew it was a story. You may, your, your brain picked up on cues that this was a story. You classified it as a certain kind of story. And even though your brain told you it was a fake story, how many of you got a little emotionally wrapped up in this man, right? You got a little bit on the edge of your seat as I told the story. And then as I relieved the tension of this story your brain knew was a false story, how many of you laughed or, or uh, at least snickered? Give me that, right? Um, like, think about how you got sucked into that story, you knew it was fake, and yet you had an emotional reaction to the story. Because stories do something to us. They suck us in, they engage us, they move us emotionally. A shared story can form a community and conflicting stories can start wars. Why does story have such power? How does that work? Well, there's a lot of science out there about the, the power of story, that really your brain works on story. You're neurologically wired for story. Your memory works on story. For example, if I asked you to remember your grandmother's house, you might remember the place and what it looks like, but very soon you're going to remember stories about what happened there. You don't just remember the living room. You remember being in the living room with certain people. It's because your mind actually stores things with story. This is why if you go to a new place, people will sometimes give you directions, maybe you've had this happen to you, based on things that used to happen or used to be there, right? Like turn left where the old swing tree used to be and down by where the 5 and 10 was. That's not helpful if you're moving to a new place. But when we drive, we drive through our stories. In fact, you can probably remember, you you probably have intersections where you had certain conversations with your spouse in the car. And when you drive by, you remember that conversation almost every time you drive by that particular spot, right? Because when you drive around, you're driving around your memories and your memories are based on story. This is why some people can't tell stories. You know this person, or you have them in your family, where you tell they tell stories, but they bring in details that have nothing to do with the current story that we're in, right? This is this is story. Story is how your mind stores things. What science has not really been able to explain is why your brain is so oriented towards story. Some scientists have suggested that the brain uses story to imagine and think of potential survival situations. That cavemen used to sit around in the fire at the end of the day, the end of the hunt, and they would share stories. And it was part of learning, part of learning what I could have done better in my story, or maybe learning from somebody else's story of the mistakes or the successes that they made. Now, you probably do this, right? How, have you ever had the situation where you, you go into a situation, you're going to have a hard conversation with somebody, and you're like working it out in your head, like if he says this, then I'm gonna say this, and if she says that, then I'm gonna respond. Like, right? You're preparing. You're working. You're you're imagining the story ahead of time, or you've probably done this where you imagine it later, right? Like, like two hours after the conversation, you think of the zinger that you should have said that you didn't have then, but but that's your mind working out the story. So your imagination is part of your survival. Yeah. Uh, now maybe your brain is oriented towards this because life is so much like a story. I mean, think about how much life unfolds in time and through seasons, like scenes in a film. We all face conflict, bump into people or situations that we have to deal with. Uh, some that we want, some that we don't. We all need comic relief. We all need guides to sort of to, to tell us what to do. Uh, a Yoda or an Obi Wan to give me some guidance on what I'm I'm going to move forward. We need companions along the way. We need clear roles in the stories that we play. See, story is wired into our brain because life is so much like story. Because of all this, when you listen to stories, you listen in a special way. And when you get sucked into a story, when you get zoned into a movie, um, it's because you're, you're actually participating in the movie. Screenwriters know this. There's a character called the hero, or the protagonist. Um, And what they want to do is they want to make you identify with that character so that you see yourself in that way. So that when the lead character is scared, you get scared. When they doubt, you doubt. And you go on the journey with them. You are experiencing the movie through the eyes of the protagonist. You're seeing yourself as the hero. Why? Because you're the star of your own movie. You're the star of your own life. This is why as we head into the Super Bowl, you're going to hear so many backstories going into it. I mean, sports are a natural movie. It's a natural conflict. It's a natural battle, but, but backstories are what help you get engaged in the story. And so you when you hear a story, you lean in. And you lean in to hear what's going to happen to a hero, and you identify with that hero. Just like cavemen before, and, and uh, it's going to happen when you watch the Super Bowl this week. The broadcasters want you to get involved in the characters. Now there was a prophet in the Bible that knew how story worked. His name was Nathan. Now David is finally king, but the time of year comes when when kings normally go after war, but David doesn't go. He stays and waits in his palace. He's up on the roof and he sees a woman bathing on her roof. Um he sleeps with her, uh likely gets her pregnant, uh kind of implied in the passage. And in order to keep, him as, keep her as his wife, he actually has to send her husband into battle and uh, basically has him killed godfather style. Bathsheba mourns her husband, and then after she mourns, she comes to be the wife of David and has his child. Now this angers God. God is not happy with this. And it should anger us too. So God calls a prophet named Nathan to go to David and tell him that he shouldn't have slept with a married woman and killed her husband. Now imagine you're Nathan and you got to do that. Okay, they've got a son now, which means it's been at least ten months since this all went down, and David has gotten away with it. The great warrior king that killed Goliath has gotten away with it, and God tells you, Nathan, to go tell David he shouldn't have done that. Well, I think he knows he shouldn't have done that. Okay, I don't want to be the guy that tells him because because otherwise, if you do that, you're the guy going to get whacked, and he's going to get away with killing you next. So so let me read from Second Samuel chapter uh, 12, verses 1 through 7, and listen to how Nathan responds. And the Lord sent to sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe of a lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up. And he grew up with him and with his children. It's the family pet. He used to eat morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now he came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And Nathan goes on to give God's judgment for David doing that. He says, you are the man. Nathan goes and tells a story. story of a man who steals a lamb. And David ends up condemning his own behavior. So Nathan doesn't get into trouble. But now you know why it worked, right? We've already seen that David's brain is wired for story. Like any of us, he gets sucked in, just like you got sucked into the joke. He got emotional about the story. and And he's heard enough story to expect a good ending. And he wants to be the hero. The rescuer, the protagonist in the story. After all, he's king. He should have the power to make things right and to put the man to death. What doesn't cross David's mind is the idea that he's the bad guy. Not until Nathan changes David's role in the story and says, You are that man. See, Nathan uses a story to get David to change his story. Jesus was really good at story too. He was a master storytelling and story thinking. He once was fellowshipping and eating with a group of people called sinners and tax collectors. They're called sinners because they can never go before God to be right. And uh, the tax collectors were, were outcasts. They weren't accepted by the people. They were, uh, you know, they they had they collected money for the Roman taxes. And uh, so he he's eating with these low of the low, and he's judged. By the Pharisees and the scribes, who would never belittle themselves to go eat with those people, they were the holy rollers, they're right with God. So they judge Jesus for who he's eating with. So what does Jesus do? Well, he tells three stories: a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. But in the third one, he he portrays both groups, right? That that there's these sinners and tax collectors. They're like the younger son. Who come to their senses and come, and then they, then they throw a party and a big meal. Remember, Jesus at a meal. Then there's this elder brother that, that's supposed to represent these scribes and Pharisees that won't come into the meal. And at the end of the story, the Pharisees are at, have forced to answer the same question that this man is saying. Will you come into the party? Will you actually be part so Jesus tells this story and captures these two groups perfectly and, 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 and has them have to look at their scenario differently because of the story that he tells. Jesus changes a lot of stories too. Oh, you were blind? Not anymore. You were lame? Well, not in the next chapter. You were dead and your story was over, Lazarus? Well, I've got a little different ending here for you. See, I believe this story is fundamental to who we are as people. And it is a central element of the Christian faith. And our, our hymn writers knew this. I heard an old old story. Tell me the old old story. We've a story to tell to the nations. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme and glory to tell the old old story. This is my story. This is my song. After all, the Bible's Bible's not a, a rule book. It's a book of stories. Even the book of Numbers, which you would think might be an Excel spreadsheet, is really a book about the story of how we got the numbers. At the heart of our faith is this overarching meta narrative, this grand story of God's love for and saving work for this world. And you're a part of that story. And it is it is our story. And it's the church's story. And we have a part to play in that story. Uh, And and our community has a story. Our nation has a story. Really, our nation is sort of fighting over what our story is right now. We live multiple stories in multiple roles. I have a role at home and at work and a role at church. We play all kinds of parts and all kinds of stories. Sometimes in our story we get writer's block. Sometimes we have bad stories and we get typecasted in our roles like Bruce Willis in basically every movie he's ever been in. I know plenty of people in churches that are living some pretty boring stories where they're just not doing much. They're not involved in anything bigger than themselves. I know some people that went through tragedy and their story kind of stopped right there because they lost the courage to keep going. Sometimes we need to make peace with our previous chapter of the story so that we can move on. So a big part of my ministry is to do more than storytelling, but story thinking. When I work in my sermons and my interactions as I engage with you in our church community. I'm always trying to get you to connect with this overarching story, to, to see these Bible stories as living, and, and then to translate those into your life. Because I think that's what the the, the Christian faith is all about. I want to work to write a, the next chapter for our church's story. So you've already seen a lot of this kind of thinking, and, and I'm, I'm excited in this series to, to, to unpack that a little bit. Central for me, in my ministry and in my life, is the idea that God is a great story writer. He's a big story writer. He writes big stories, and he's in the character transformation business. God does not leave David alone. He sends Nathan to retell the story and jumpstart a new story for David. Jesus comes to tell new stories. So where are you with this Jesus story? Where's your story a bit stuck? What stories do you want to live into in the future? May God, the master story writer, guide you and I and guide our church in the next chapter and beyond. Amen.